Hello and welcome to Robust Discuss with Sean and Brian. This is a podcast where we politically discuss our society and the various pathways we could take to improve it. We will dive deep into our morality, our government, and our lives and have topics ranging from philosophical questions to U.S. politics and even some current events. Today, we will actually be discussing immigration to the United States of America, but we do um, want to take a interesting avenue to discussing this, and we hope to do that today by focusing much more on the process of legal immigration, the possible roadblocks or instances you may run into that may hinder your ability to enter the country legally and officially. And we're basically going to try to discuss how that may or may not be a contributing factor to why people may forego this legal immigration process to um, get here illegally. Yeah, a little bit of a long intro today, guys. But uh, hey, how you doing today, Brian? You doing all right, man? Having a good day? Yeah, I'm pretty good, man. Honestly, just chilling. Just ready to talk about immigration. You know, just to kind of put it short and sweet, what you just said, it's it's us really looking at the core issue of immigration. So less of illegal immigration being not just a problem in itself, but more so a symptom and us really kind of trying to look at the process of immigration as the source of that issue, right? Yeah, like the source of the reason there is more of an issue of illegal immigration is due to the problems of legal immigration. Right. We're obviously going to explain that throughout the episode. We're going to kind of talk about some of the various pathways you can take and um, basically the road bumps you'll run into, the timelines you may be presented with, the issues that may come about, things like that. This is kind of what my hypothesis was. Is when, Brian, you, you initially brought up this topic to me, I was like, you know what? I, I do want to talk about that process because, one, I didn't actually know a lot of this information. Some of these visas and things I learned about is, is a little interesting. It, it is, it's good to know and understand that. But right. beyond that, the first thing I thought of is I was like, man, I bet you it's full of so much red tape that people just don't even want to deal with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the more and more I see and the more and more I, I like deal with it, I'm noticing I really think it's uh, it's just that kind of problem. You know what I mean? Like there's just too much red tape. And so we're going to talk about that here today. Right. Yeah. And uh, for me, you know, I'm part of the Hispanic community. So that's something that you become very aware of more so on a personal level. And you kind of see how that affects people. No, and it does. And so like kind of give our listeners a little bit of insight on how you're how you got in the country, how your family got here, things like that. If you, if you can talk a little bit about that. So actually, yeah, I can. So fun story. I'm Puerto Rican, so I actually do not have to go through the pitfalls of immigration. There you go. Okay. Since Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It's considered U.S. land. So at birth, I am automatically considered a U.S. citizen. 
Yeah. And so that's that's actually a good point to bring up, because I don't know if not if everybody is aware of that, but it's not just being born on U.S. soil. You can be born on there. There's like a couple other distinctions and like our U.S. territories, such as, as Puerto Rico, is one of those one of those places like Hawaii before it became a state. Yeah. Hawaii is a state now. But yeah, yeah. Before it was for sure. For sure. Guam, too. I think that's a U.S. territory. Yeah. And so you were born in Puerto Rico. How how old were you when you immigrated to the U.S.? Four months. Well, okay. Wow. Do you know about your parents' kind of uh, like background and, and plan? Was it were they always expecting to bring you here as a child, or was it kind of like a, a spur of the moment? Or no, um, actually, um, it was a little bit. I come from a religious background, and uh, my father felt that he had a certain calling um, to come to the United States um, to, uh, well, you know, he had some of his family and eventually all of my father's side of the family came over to the United States. I'm not sure in which order, but, you know, I know that over time they all came to the United States, came to live here. My entire family lives here. Uh, they've been living here for decades. Uh, okay. And frankly, they're pretty, you know, um, I'd say that pretty, what's the word? Like Americanized? Is that what you want? Are you trying to say? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say Americanized. Yeah. That's a perfect word for what I was looking for. Obviously they still have their culture, but they've adapted very well to uh U.S. culture. Most of them speak English perfectly fine. So, I mean, do you know, because I didn't actually think to look into this for the research prior to the episode, but do you know the process of so you're a U.S. citizen. Do you already get like a social security number and everything? Yep. Being born in Port, like, so your parents already had of that? Like, yeah. Is it almost as simple as like, get, you just have to have a passport and you are almost like you're moving states. You just kind of come to the country, get a new driver's license and move. We didn't have to do anything. Well, okay. So it's literally no different. I, As far as I'm concerned, there's no difference between being born in Puerto Rico versus being born in Vermont. Other than when you um, fill out your, uh, you know, certain government forms that ask for race and ethnicity. Some of them say Hispanic, Latino, white. Some of them say natural born U.S. citizen. So, wow. As a kid, that was a little tricky for me. I'll be frank. I still don't know the answer. But otherwise, I haven't had any issues in my life. I've traveled outside the country uh, as a United States citizen within states perfectly fine i've lived in the united states my entire life so i mean yeah mine's like the four months right right exactly so yeah that's an interesting thing to uh to kind of think about and um to consider for sure yeah like that's something to definitely consider a little bit of brian lore right there so like that that's great to kind of keep in in the back burner and understand and know and so like I'll be sure to kind of think about that going forward for all, all those people but let's jump ships so talking about the people who aren't born in uh, U.S. territories and are here or needing to come here. There are so many, so, so many visas that... Yeah, I'd say the, the process is slightly more complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like flipping from where we were with how simple it was to 
like going back, this is not nearly as simple. There are so, so many visas. They do almost restrict it right. to a few major categories. So the, the first like kind of major category is immediate relative and family sponsored. So some immediate relative or family member is sponsoring you to bring you to the United States and basically like support your pathway to citizenship. The next way is employer sponsored. That's the next. And then before I keep going, keep in mind within that there is like just here being listed for immigrant visa categories. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like 14 different visas. And then each one of those has further subcategories based on like what specifically how you specifically meet that. Yeah, you're very specific situation. Yeah. Like, I mean, something as simple as like I, I was looking up processing time for applying for naturalization after you've already lived here as a permanent resident. And it changes vague like pricing and things change vaguely based on your age. So like, there's so many forms and things that fit within that family category. But yeah, which actually I think I know somebody who went through that process. Oh, really? OK, that's maybe ask about them. We can touch back on this episode later on if they'd ever want to come and talk about it. It'd be great to have someone on. And obviously, too, any of our listeners out there, if you specifically went through this immigration process and you'd like to kind of come back and talk to us about it, please reach out to us on Twitter at Robust Podcast. We have a Discord server. We would love to hear from you, kind of get more information and further our knowledge. Uh, so backing up, we have that immediate relative and family sponsored. Then we have employer sponsored, which is like priority workers, professionals, other workers, employment creation, investors, things like that. Religious workers, even it can vary multiple, multiple forms within that category. And then there's like other immigrants, which is kind of a diversity immigrant visa. And then like returning residents, I'm assuming that's more or less if you've if you've left and come back. What the diversity immigrant diversity visa program, it's special own thing because it's a limited period of time which you can register each year the department of state publishes instructions for entering it all entries are submittable electronically basically it is like it's an extra program to allow like you, you can hopefully get in due to different processes you have to submit an entry there's a selection of applicants confirm the qualifications that you meet you then have to submit the immigrant visa and alien registration application you have a interview the applicant interview preparing for the interview and everything going through all of that like there's so many more to it because there's this qualifying education such as high school education, work experience. There's a variety of things. It's kind of like the specialty point and it's very vague on how you can be accepted. So that's not normally the route. And that's kind of why I started there, because we're really only going to touch on that. The diversity visa section in this little section here, we're going to move on because the other ones are a lot more not to use the pun, but a lot more robust because they have so many more forms and specific selections for everybody's process and the procedure of immigrating. Yeah, we ain't trying to make this an hour episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, we're, we're already like, what's 12 minutes in and, and we haven't barely started talking about the actual process because there's genuinely so much. Just finessing that content. No, just kidding. But uh, go ahead, Sean. <laughs> yeah, right. No, pump out the content. No, but for real, guys. So we're going to start with the with the relative and family sponsored. One of the most popular versions of that immigration is the I-130 petition for alien relative. And then like the categories of that firm are permanent resident filing for a spouse, U.S. citizen filing for spouse, uh, son or daughter, brother or sisters, things like that. This is one of the primary forms that's used. On average, the I-130 form can take up to 28 months. 
The longest is 40 months. Current average processing time is 28 months. Some being as low as 12 months. That's the lowest, actually, for the processing of this form is 12 months. At minimum a year. Yeah, at minimum a year at maximum like three and a half because 40 months. So you're, you're looking at like three, three and like two months. So safe to say it's going to be a two year process. Yeah, a minimum 20. And that's what they said. The current average processing time for permanent residents filing for I-130 for a spouse beneficiary is 28 months. Now, U.S. citizens filing that I missed this in our earlier discussions. And that's kind of interesting to read. The processing time for U.S. citizens filing this form is 18 months. But for legal permanent residents filing that form, it's 28 months. So for those people who haven't filed the N-400 form for naturalization and going into becoming a citizen, it's a longer wait, which there's weights to the N-400 form in its own right and its own issues that it has. We'll we'll get to that in a bit. But simply to get married, it's an average wait of 28 months. And then that's only the first form. There's another form that the second form you and your spouse must file to get the green card. This allows your spouse to adjust status, get permanent residency and become the U.S. green card holder. That one has a whole separate waiting time. So depending on where you live, I'll take a random example of Columbus, Ohio. The wait time is 13 and a half months. This is just furthering that time period. Right. right? This is just further extending it and creating more hoops. And this is only if you are like getting married yeah. or have a family member. For those who aren't marrying somebody or have a family member, it is an even more difficult process to obtain a pathway to a green card and become a legal citizen. Yeah, which plenty of people will be the first person in their family to immigrate because, you know, people across the world aren't, you know, <laughs> aren't stupid, right? A lot of them probably figured, okay, if we can get one of us through it's going to start getting easier to get the rest of us through, right? But it's all about that long process of getting that first family member through. And we haven't even started talking about the cost of all of this yet. Huh. Yeah, all of this, the H form that you file has its own fees associated with it. And that's just simply the form filing fees. They're still obviously like, getting here, which yes, of course, like that's everybody's going to have to pay to get here and go through that process. I I believe the average was $535 for the form, for the marriage form. And so also too, to further our credibility, I'm getting all of this information from USCIS.gov. They actually have a fee calculator in which you can select the form you are going to be filing, the I-130 submit it and the total is $535. They tell you that's how much your fees are going to cost. So that's on top of obviously this is for a relative or marriage and stuff. So you have to go through a wedding. You have to go through getting here. You have to go through them filing the form. And then until this form is completed, you're not considered a legal resident. You, You won't have that pathway opened up and access and getting a green card. You could be possibly limited further during your time here because the process hasn't finished. Obviously, that can vary drastically depending on how you were here in the first place. But a lot of people can end up in bad situations because they may lose access to their jobs 
or places they're living or like the contracts and the things they've signed because they can enter periods of limbo where they're not fully a citizen. And if this form hasn't finished processing and it can put people in odd situations where even though they're doing the right thing, they can end up in a place that is just bringing them down and working, literally working against them because it just takes that time and then that time expires and this happens and then they end up without proper citizenship in the country, which creates obviously its own wealth of problems. Right. So, you know, kind of a way that we can look at it is let's say you're coming from any country that's currently experiencing difficult times. So a lot of South American countries, um, some Eastern Europeans, some Middle, Middle Eastern countries, some Southern African countries that, you know, experience poverty, that experience severe corruption, that experience warfare, terrorism, stuff like that. So you're leaving a very toxic, hectic environment to engage in a process. And now, and I know that um, visas for asylum, asylum visas, excuse me, exist. However, that's not a guaranteed way. And it is and not It's easy. not easy and not every place. So I don't think, for example, uh, some South American countries are are eligible for those types of visas because they're not considered dangerous places to live per se. Now, obviously, things like, again, like how I said, corrupt governments, cartels, general crime in some in some of these areas. Uh, so you would wish to flee, but you have to figure out, OK, this is going to take and this is why it takes years for people to immigrate or this is part of the reason why it takes months to years for each step in the uh, immigration process. And that's just like if everything went smooth, it would still take years to process your forms, right? You're not adding on top of the dangers and pressures uh, in the current country that that person's coming from. You also talk about the cost of everything, right? So $500 to process this visa, it might not seem like a lot, but depending on where the person's coming from, their currency could be vastly less valued compared to the U.S. dollar. So $500 for us would be, I don't know, what, like an eighth of a paycheck? Yeah. Didn't you say it was like 9,000 something pesos? Yeah. For Mexico, for example, you know, their their annual salary ranges from ranges from 9,000 pesos all the way up to like 400,000 pesos, but the exchange rate really equates to the average salary in Mexico being 23,000 US dollars, right? $500 for one form that you have to wait multiple years on when you're living in a dangerous area is a lot to um, deal with and to ask of a person. Oh, it is. And on top of that, that's a that's a cost for filing a fee. If you're like if you have a relative here or as married, someone is like getting married to somebody here. So not only is the cost a barrier, there's still that whole barrier of you have to have a relative or family member marriage right. like pathway of, with a U.S. citizen. Right. Obviously, there's there's other forms and other ways that you can enter so there's like that's that's mostly in immediate relative and family sponsored section it's like spouse of a u.s citizen a fiance to marry there's actually what's called a k-1 visa where you can go through the if you're like engaged to marry 
There's even an adoption process of orphan children by U.S. citizens. But all these, obviously, that you have to have, like, essentially a you have to have a sponsor that's already Mm -hmm. here. So for all those people that don't have a sponsor that's already here, they can't even use that. This and that and these entire sections of visas are completely irrelevant to them because nobody is here already. So. Touching back to with what you were saying on asylum, when people come to the asylum, they have to basically prove and show that they've been suffered uh, persecution or fear that they will suffer persecution due to race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or any political opinions. You can also only file this application if you are physically present in the United States and you are not a U.S. citizen. So you have to get here first. Which, if you're seeking asylum and you're fleeing a probable, like, deteriorating country or a country that is threatening you, you probably don't have access to a lot. So getting here is not going to be easy. It becomes genuinely difficult to travel. And costly. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, because depending on what, what documents you have... In the country where you're at, you may not be able to like theoretically, if you were to have the money, you may not be able to buy a plane ticket or do anything like that. You're just stuck. Um, So you may just be stuck taking boats, trying to find people to help you cross here, there or travel this way like that can happen. But again, you, you have to get here first. Then you file the asylum, like the asylum form, form I-589. And it's also only available for certain applicants. So there's like parts of this where if you don't necessarily qualify, they won't let you completely file it. There's like that whole process. And then through all of that, there is still no certainty that you will stay here. You have to either go through the affirmative process, asylum merits interview after a positive, credible fear determination or or a defensive process. So it's you, you can easily be turned away, not fully processed, and you just don't get to you just don't get to stay here. And then we're, we're, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to handle that out? Obviously, again, we're we're not going to then comment here on how to fix this. I know that's a big point in politics and especially with all the whole Democrat and Republicans conversations. It's very much on how we should fix this, how many we're letting in, things like that. I want to avoid that. And instead, let's just talk about the, how this is flawed. These systems are flawed. Um, How you want to solve them or whether you think they should be allowed to seek asylum in the first place is more or less a separate conversation. The system in place is flawed. That's kind of where we're going to focus. Right. We don't have to say um, one way or the other, right, on our feelings, but more so when you are aware of something that's not working, then you begin to, to be able to better find a solution for a problem. You know, the first part of first part of fixing something is admitting that it's broken. Yep. And it's definitely broken. There's there's a lot of outliers. Um, An article I did find referenced that in 1991, three percent of immigrants or those seeking visas through family members already in the U.S. had to wait more than 10 years. In 2018, that was up to 27 percent experience that wait time. So while we talked earlier about it can take 28 months and things like that, those were for individual forms that are still an entire process that is left to go through that adds and adds and adds on fees and time and process. 
to be fully honest, I don't know the exact way to simplify it. There's a lot of reasons. There's each form does designate different things. You know, they designate they designate different factors of people's lives that could be the determining reason for their immigration. It's a good way to say it. It makes sense that there's a variety of forms because there's a variety of people and reasons one may immigrate. But it almost becomes so convoluted that it becomes not either not feasible or extremely less practical than the alternative of just getting here and going through the like after process of what being already here. Like, for example, there is a subreddit that is literally for not necessarily for it's probably like personally ran by by normal people, but it is built on the um, USCIS system of like helping people through the program. Right. And there's a big there's a post on there I was looking through just to kind of see, you know, from responses from real people. This person was talking about applying for that K-1 um, visa I talked about earlier to marry like and become engaged with their fiance and go through that process. And every single one of the comments recommended that they just get married and file the appropriate form after the fact. Because almost essentially going on the, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, but basically because like once you're married to a U.S. citizen, it allows you certain processes that make you able to live here. But going through the initial process to ask to be married can take so long and be so convoluted that it can delay so much that you essentially waste so much time doing it that way rather than the other way. And that's unfortunate. It honestly is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's, you know, 10 years waiting in your country to um, try to immigrate legally or just kind of going over there, taking a low wage job and just hoping for the best. Now, not to say like illegal like personally not to say that that's okay legal immigration is illegal but you can start to understand why people make these decisions and i think that's on a lot of the uh, political issues that there's general discourse within this country about we miss the point of hey how did we get here in the first place why are these people choosing to make these decisions right really kind of just putting yourself in uh the other person's shoe to really understand oh okay this is why this is happening. And then, you know, how can we go about fixing it? Which is not for us on this podcast right now to decide, but, you know, it's to kind of steer the discourse in that direction where you really start to be like, okay, now I see it from a more unbiased perspective, perhaps. Yeah. And that's the thing is that it's, it, it really is like just almost becomes a more practical option to go through the illegal. And then the big thing is like, we haven't always been so convoluted. Obviously population has changed drastically. So that probably impacts the, like this being a viable option. But previously you would just get on a boat, come on over, arrive in like New York, be processed. Figure it out. At, yep. Be processed on the Island and then transport it into the U S and like you go through the process there. Mm -hmm. it, I, I don't obviously, like I said, so the amount of people that would probably be showing up at like Ellis Island and stuff is probably way drastic now than what it would have been in those years. Oh, yeah, it would be, especially nowadays. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I'm not I'm not just saying that like, oh, let's do that. But I'm saying that like these are other avenues that we could look to and things that could be possible. Right. Right. And, you know, there's like obviously there's 
been issues if you look abroad uh, with immigration of countries not being like legitimately uh, being unable to sustain it. So there's legitimate issues as to having a sort of system in place, but there needs to be more efficiency, more thought put into those systems to make, you know, the the people who do deserve access to this country for them not to go through a uh, five to 10 year wait and uh, multiple thousands of dollars, which means a lot more to them than it does to us in certain scenarios, at least. No, of course it does. And that's the thing. Another thing we do try to do here is we talk about, you know, what you can do as a person to kind of help this process and and maybe improve your surrounding society. The best advice I would have is do some research, look into the different forms, look into the different process and kind of understand it. And once you've kind of gone through that, obviously write to your representatives. That is the the pathway that we can go and we can take in this country to voice our opinions as they do get our votes if they want to stay in office. And so if you show them that you're unhappy with these laws and kind of ask for their support to change them and they don't get it and then they lose your vote. Obviously, that's they can see those reactions and they can see that. So you can you can reach out to those communities. You can talk to them. Obviously, if you have any friends, family members who may have experienced this and gone through the process of immigrating, you can kind of talk to them, maybe hear their story, understand their side and see what they dealt with. And maybe that can give you further insight into how it can get better and, you know, what you can take away from it, from the system to make it less convoluted. Right. And uh, share their stories, converse, discuss respectfully, listen to other people and their concerns. It doesn't matter which way you lean politically, because, again, this podcast not isn't really about that. It's more so, you know, trying to be fair and objective as much as one reasonably can and just trying to discuss, you know, the the reality of the situations we are in today. Which immigration is still a still a topic that's discussed a lot. So there's a lot of ways that you can go about it. But honestly, discussing with people and again, genuinely hearing what people have to say, despite your biases, because that's how change can happen, in my opinion. When the general public actually cares about something, things can actually happen. You know, a motivated public can change the law. We've seen it before. Yeah, exactly. Definitely can. So yeah, guys, that pretty much does cover our episode for the day. If you are out there and you are looking for more interaction, you can connect with us on Twitter at Robust Podcast. And we also have a Discord server where you can join completely for free and chat with other users and listeners to kind of voice your opinion. And there is a pathway there if you'd like to support us and kind of get some behind the scenes content, see our recording process, talk to us about some of the sources we use a little bit more in depth. And you even can get into voting and suggesting episode topics. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. See you.